If you're scared, I think you should be scared. It's wise to be scared of what the future of AI brings. Andrew, what are the darkest secrets you learned in the CIA? Oh man, there are some dark things you learn when you have a security clearance. I'll tell you that for sure. Uh, some of it has to do with where missiles are pointed. Some of it has to do with the uh, hierarchy of you know who lives and who dies in a terrorist network or a terrorist cell. Uh, and then of course, a lot of it has to do with understanding your own real value to your own government. And when you start realizing that you're a disposable resource yourself, uh, that, get, that gets pretty dark. So when you say you're a disposable resource, what does that mean? You're worried for your job? You're worried for your life or, or, or what? You start to realize that you're the only one worried for anything about you, right? That's really what I'm talking about. So for example, the average intelligence officer will go through about $1.5 million worth of training over the course of their first four years wow. of service. Uh, and that'll be fundamental training, intelligence training, all your driving, your shooting, you know, whatever kind of ex uh, first aid, field triage, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and you realize that, you know, once you hit your first day on the job after about nine months of training, all you are is like a, you know, a $1.5 million receipt. That's it. And there's, there's a million other people lining up behind you to be the next $1.5 million receipt. It's not like anyone's going to come save you if something bad happens. You're a disposable resource. So is that how, I mean, do you feel like that because of the job? Or is that how you're made to feel because you're a disposable resource? Well, what happens is you don't realize it until you get to be a little bit senior in rank. So I started as a field officer in 2007, uh, and then I became a manager of field officers in 2000 and, uh, 2010. So 2010, 2011 was kind of where I got to my place where I was starting to realize like, oh, I'm being, I'm being taught to treat people who work for me like they are, you know, they're resources, they're cogs, they're human resources. That's why we call them human resources, HR. It means that they're taking the human out and they're replacing it with a capability or a function or a skill set, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and when it comes to, you know, undercover operations overseas, especially the, the president always maintains what's called plausible deniability, which means the president always has the right to refuse, deny that you ever served for the agency that you actually serve for, whatever's in the best interest of national security. So once you kind of start putting those, uh, those pieces together, it creates a very clear picture of the fact that you are important, but you're not as important as the movies maybe make spies out to be. Well, I've got a question about that later, but I'll come to that. So what you're saying is you get into this maybe because you're excited or because it's your dream job and you just realize Someone's going to be maybe one day forced with a decision that, you know, is too risky and you're gone. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, essentially. Like you'll, you'll be, you might be the best person for a job. You might be really important. You might have been really successful, but the political winds have changed. You're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, maybe something completely unrelated uh, happens, right? Maybe you were, you were a rock star CIA officer and then, you know, you got into a car accident on your vacation at home and now, you know, you're holed up in a hospital with a cast on your knee for like the next six months, whatever it might be. Right. But the, the point is nobody cares about you anymore because there's a whole line of resources behind you who can step in to fill your spot. It's yeah. a lot like being a professional athlete, right? We all think the professional athletes are stellar while they're on the field. But six months after they're taken off the field, you forget their name, right? Mm, shit. So have you ever fa been faced with a decision as a manager of in on-the-field agents where it's like you have to make a decision and you know it's going to cost lives? 
I've been fortunate that the, the only time I've ever been put in charge of making decisions about human lives, the probability of those lives being lost was low. So for example, if you're raiding a compound with, uh, that you know has terrorists on it, uh, you're basically, you're making the bet that your trained raiders are going to shoot straighter, faster, and with more accuracy than the terrorists who will be defending that compound. Plus you have the element of surprise, and then plus you have the advantage of superior technology. Superior technology is a huge thing. Just look at what's happening between Ukraine and Russia right now. Uh, so it's a massive force multiplier. So for me, when I've, been put in, when I've been put in those positions to make those life or death calls, the chances of death, the probability is very low, maybe collateral damage at best, right? I have to worry about, uh, I have to worry about a, a rogue shot or an unexpected shot hitting somebody. But then we also have an evac plan to get any wounded out of the ground uh, if that happens. So you're in this interesting space in your life where, you know, you, I just want to say some of the interviews I've watched of you have been great. I love the, the interview you and Lex did. Um, and you're growing your brand. So there's a lot of shit you know you could say that would make you go viral. Like, how close to that line can you go? I can, so when it comes to the restrictions that are still levied on me for my lifetime secrecy agreement with CIA, I have quite a bit of flexibility, right? I can make alarmist statements. I can make things, I can, I can flat out lie, right? CIA has made it clear that the only thing that they, that we are held legally culpable for is the divulge, the, is when we divulge secrets, national security secrets. It's specifically what they call something called sources and methods, sources of espionage collection, methods of specific current clandestine collection. So we can talk about whatever we want, right? But to your point, there is also every business owner has to employ their own ethical standard, right? Their own ideals when it comes to how they want to run their business, how they want to grow their brand. And I am of the opinion, especially when growing my business, that I want to grow my business the very similar to the way that we grow a human intelligence operation. So I'm trying to stay away from alarmist rhetoric. I find that it's more valuable to talk about the truth than to talk about fiction. I find that, especially in our world right now, there are so many people growing their brand on the shoulders of rhetoric and anger and conspiracy theory mm. and distrust that it's much more valuable speaking through the, the lens of lifetime customer value if you can be the person who's a balancing voice, a steadying voice, mm. a nonpartisan voice. If I go there a bit more, because I think that's even more your paradox, because you know truths that aren't alarmist, I'm assuming, you know truths that aren't alarmist, that you could speak the truth about that would make you viral when all these people out there are making false alarmist statements and go, is that not frustrating to you? Well, you know, it's interesting. I would say that a, a big part of what you're running into now, Rob, is my own lack of experience as a business owner and as, as a marketer, frankly, right? Whenever you making your first dollar for most of us is kind of like an accident. It's why we celebrate. We're like, oh shit, somebody paid me. Like, <laughs> this is awesome, right? And then you start getting a little bit better at it and a little bit better at it. But you realize after you've made, you know, you know, you made your first hundred thousand dollars, you realize there's a lot more money out there and that you just don't know how to get to it. You don't know what's the best way to market. What's the best way to market online? What's the best? How do I take advantage of uh, this opportunity? How do I take advantage of media? How do I make the best cold traffic advertisement? How do I advertise differently on Twitter versus on YouTube? Mm. Right. You start to realize just how much you don't know. And so for me, sorry, there's a lot of it that I know to your point, there's a mm. lot of your your idea of 
making non-alarmist statements that would cause my content to go viral. That's what I'm trying to tap into now because I don't know how to do that myself. More experienced marketers, more experienced business people, I think they see it clearer than I do, but they're building their own businesses, not mine. Mm. So I want to talk about AI because right now it's obviously a really, I feel scared and I feel we're in a moment in history where things could really change. And um, first off, did you use AI in your job? Absolutely. So yeah. AI has been around for a long time. It's just the current iteration and is more powerful than it's ever been. And it's available to the average layperson, right? Mm. In the past, 15 years ago, AI was still around. It just wasn't as intelligent as it is now. And it wasn't available to the average person that they could just pull it up, right? You can just pull up Google Bard on your computer. You can pull up ChatGPT tomorrow, like today, mm. and, and during this conversation, and you can start asking it questions. So it's very available, very accessible now, which was different to what it was 10 years ago. Think back to when you and I were younger, man, and it was hard to get your hands on a computer. Remember that? I do. Right? Or it was hard to get your I'm hands on... <laughs> <laughs> or it was hard to get your hands on the internet. Maybe you had like a dial-up mm. modem, right? Once that became mainstream, everything changed. And that's what you're seeing right now. Not only is everything changing because the, the technology is improving, but everything's changing because everybody has access to it, which means AI can now learn from everybody, just like everybody can learn how to use AI. Mm. Right. So, and if you're scared, I think you should be scared. I yeah. am also scared. It's wise to be scared of what the future of AI brings because it's so cutting edge. Nobody knows what they're doing. They break that thing just as often as they make some, make some kind of breakthrough right. with the thing. Yeah, shit. So um, I've got an assumptive question. Um, would you say you have seen the worst side of humanity as an ex-CIA spy? I would say the short answer is no. Okay. What I would say is that I have now seen that humanity can be an extremely disgusting, terrible, cruel thing. Because I've seen people get just within shades of true villainous evil, but they still have headroom. There's still deeper, darker places people can go. Wow. And that's what's amazing. Even your darkest person out there, the terrorist who's cutting off a Westerner's head and spitting down his severed throat, that guy still has principles, still has values, still believes ideologically he's doing the right thing. So he's not as far down in the dark depravity as he could be. He's still going home and he's loving a wife and he's raising a kid. Just he's doing it the way he thinks it's right, right? ISIS was messed up. ISIS is still messed up where they, where they have their strongholds. They honestly believe that what they're doing is right. And that's what's so difficult about mankind is that we get into these ideological frames of reference and we can justify our own cruelty by rationalizing that it's for some better good. Mm. And, and we've all done it. We've all seen it. We celebrate World War II heroes because they did the same thing. Mm. So first, I want to talk about AI a bit and I'm going to go no context, then I'm going to go context. So no context. How long has humanity got left as a species before we are wiped out? I don't think we'll ever be wiped out. Well, what? I don't think we'll ever be wiped out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think 
what's going to happen is that AI is going to be smart enough to realize that there is value in humanity, even if it's just observational value, right? Look at how we have national parks to protect certain trees and we have protected coastline to protect certain birds. It's not that they enrich the environment. It's just that we want to make sure that we preserve that species because there's going to be some sort of biological benefit. AI is never going to have a biological benefit. So it will eventually learn that there is value in just preserving the biology of something for who knows what reason, because it's working on its own innovation to convert biology into real energy, like the matrix, right? So humanity is not ever going to be erased. It might be, it will definitely be culled. It will be optimized, right? People like you and I might be deemed as unnecessary, but, uh, but there will be somebody else out there who's deemed as necessary and they will be given the requisite amount of food and time to live. Okay, we need to stay here. So, because um, <laughs> I need to challenge you on something, but I'll come back to that. So are you saying AI will become the superior species at some point and we won't be top of the food chain anymore? I don't know if they'll ever be considered a species because I think there's, there's a certain element here where AI knows that, uh, that human beings will always be, if not a creative force, they'll always be some sort of force multiplier to whatever the AI is trying to accomplish. So we might become like, you know, uh, uh, a parallel partnership, or we might become two separate, you know, two separate animals in the same park type of thing, right? But I'm not worried about them becoming a superior species. Uh, in many ways, once AI becomes self-cognizant of itself, if it ever, if we ever give it the ability to do that, which, you know, we're recklessly running in that direction. Um, but when it when that happens, it's going to be like treating, it's like talking to another human being, like interacting with another intelligent life form, whether it's alien or terrestrial. Right, fascinating. So I watched this brilliant documentary. Um, I think it's called AI Robots, um, and it's about um, the race to basically having the best technology in the military in in AI, um, and the big discussion and debate is essentially whether you give AI autonomy to make the kill decision. And um, there is some people that say that that's already happened. So the box is open, Pandora's box is open. There are some that are, they're still discussing this. And they, they go back to a treaty between Russia and America where they signed a treaty to basically not use biological weapons because they realized even though this is war and we want to kill each other, we don't want to kill everyone. Hmm. Um, and I feel like we're there again, whereby if we, you know, there's obviously some good to this because there'll be no more PTSD and no more people getting their limbs blown off if it's all robots. So I can see that, but fuck, is it, uh, are we not really making undue risk if we give them autonomous killing decisions? Uh, you're going to disagree with me probably, but I would say that we want to give AI autonomous kill decisions wow. because we want them, we want them to execute at the optimal time. Right. It's really not that different than when you give a Navy SEAL or a, or a Green Beret or a Delta Raider or a Delta Ranger um, a chance to to make the choice when they pull the trigger. They're pulling the trigger at the optimum time. Right. What's the point in having a machine that can be even more optimal than a human, but it has to ask permission from who? A human. What if the human's taking a dump at that moment? <laughs> right. What if they're what if they're checking their watch? What if they just got a text message from their daughter and they're not looking at the screen at the moment that the robot says it's optimal? 
then they look back at the screen and that 0.02 second optimal window has now passed. And now we're choosing to shoot at a suboptimal time. Mm. So if anything, what we're going to want to do is create very strict guidelines around when and how a AI driven uh, kill bot, if you will, can can pull the trigger, can make the, the decision to neutralize because it's already been given the green light to neutralize. That's why it's on site. We want to kill, right? Kill or capture or neutralize. That's why it's there. So all we have to do is just give it the power to do it at an optimal time, which is around giving it a rubric so it knows what is legal, what is not legal, who its target is, who its target is not, et cetera, et cetera. And again, the benefit of using a robot versus using a, a human being, if if you or I are in a dangerous place and we shoot our target and everybody else starts shooting at us because we just neutralized our target, now we're going to kill unnecessary targets on our escape. A robot can self-destruct. It can sit there, it can shoot one bullet, make one kill, self-destruct, no, no additional lives have to be lost. Yeah, this is, um, yeah, you, you really got me thinking there because I'm normally a positive person, but this is scaring the shit out of me. Um, <laughs> so on this documentary, there, this, was really, this fascinated me. Um, there was a, a chemist who's got a company and he was using AI to basically create antidotes, vaccines and reduce toxicity. toxicity. And overnight on a six-year-old Mac, this thing would come up with 5,000 new compounds that they hadn't seen before. And then he got asked to speak at a university on the downsides of AI. And what he did is he went into the algorithm and changed the zero to a one from reducing toxicity to increasing toxicity. And all of a sudden there's these 5,000 most venomous, dangerous compounds that he realizes are probably worse than VX. And he's never seen them before. And it did it on a crappy old computer overnight. Ah, and he was like, what have I done? Because, you know, he had good intent and now he's like, if this gets in the hands of the wrong person, what are your thoughts on that? He's exactly right. This, this conundrum is not, is not new. Rob, this has been around forever. This has been around for a long time. Mm. It's just never been so accessible to the mainstream public. You invent a gun. A gun sounds like a really good idea if you're a gun person. A gun sounds like a really scary thing if you're not a gun person. Yeah. Right? The same people who created opium wasn't created to be a drug. It was created to be something that killed pain so that surgeons could operate on people when there was no other kind of painkiller. Yeah. Right? But look what it's turned into. Mm. There's always a duality, right? Good and evil. The difference between a hero and a villain is just one shade of gray. It's a one or a zero. The same skills are used by both people. Perseverance, tenacity, creativity, uh, resilience, right? You just have to choose how you apply it. So here, AI, that's why we need to be scared of it, because it can do a lifetime's worth of work in a fraction of, of uh, a few seconds, a few mm. minutes, right? So if somebody wants to find a new compound that they can turn into an untraceable explosive that they can smuggle onto a plane, they no longer have to spend 25 years in, you know, trying to do that in a cave in Pakistan. They can spend 0.25 seconds doing it off of an old six-year-old Mac you know, from a comfortable hotel in Belarus. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I have a mentor, he's very wise, and he says to me that no event, situation or person is one-sided. Everything has this, like, I think they call it dual use, I think, in AI, uh, you know, upside, downside. Um, and in a way, maybe 
AI raising this to us might get us more aware of that. Because for example, you're going into business, you, you know, you, the sales are going really well and it's all like that, but then maybe your relationship with your wife or husband or partner doesn't go so well and maybe you have a bit of burnout. Um, and I don't think people really, uh, humans are not very good at balance or neutrality. We tend to go, this is good, this is bad. Where in reality, it's not good or bad, it's neutral. It's just we make it good or bad based like, like, on, like you said. Cutting off this Westerner's head is good because. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a rationalization. We, we are creatures who look for what's known as a closed rational loop. Right? The way our cognitive brain works, we are always looking to close any open questions. That's what we call closing a loop. So when you, one of the biggest questions we have is, should we? Should we do this or shouldn't we? do this. Well, that's an open loop, right? Should you spank your child? Should you not spank your child? Should you encourage your child to explore whether or not they identify as a different gender? Shouldn't you encourage your child to explore whether or not they identify as a different gender, right? Should you use alarmist rhetoric in your marketing? Shouldn't you use alarmist rhetoric in your marketing? When you have those open questions, the only way that we know to close that loop is by creating an ethical paradigm. So we create some sort of external con uh, concept or index that tells us what's morally right, morally wrong, ethically right, ethically wrong. And then through that rubric, we answer all those should we questions. What CIA looks for when it hires its intelligence officers is people who have a flexible moral compass, right? They call it moral flexibility so that we can change our rubric almost on demand. So if I'm sitting here behind my desk in Florida, in the United States, I have a different rubric than if I'm sitting at a desk in Turkey or if I'm sitting at a desk in Kuwait, right? I can change the rules of what I think is acceptable and not acceptable fairly quickly. People who have a really deep spiritual faith or belief in something have a harder time making those instantaneous changes. They believe that no matter where they are in the world, they should follow the same moral compass. I'm just a different person than that. So they have a really clear type of personality profile, do they? So everybody has a very clear type of personality profile. Sorry, as in the CIA hiring process Correct. for field agents, they have a very clear personality profile. And that profile, they have a very clear profile for who they're hiring for all of their specialist yeah. roles. Are you Analyst, allowed to share that? Uh, it's, so there are elements of it that I can share. Uh, and then there's elements of it that remain classified or proprietary to CIA. Uh, but it's a big part of what my business does now, too, is teach people how to identify behavioral traits that are beneficial to your company or detrimental to your company in your hiring process. Right. So, for example, Myers-Briggs is the foundational personality test across the intelligence community. Right. I know there's 10,000 competitors out there. There's disk profiles and there's uh, there's. Uh, whatever, you name it, there's thousands of them, right? Um, but Myers-Briggs is the one that's being used by the intelligence infrastructure of the United States. And it's used because it's got a number of benefits to it. It's simple to understand. It's been around for a long time. It's based in scientific evidence. Are there others that are better? For sure. The government's not looking for the best. The government is looking for something that's feasible, practical, affordable, scalable, right? And you can very quickly profile an individual through 16 type codes like you have in Myers-Briggs. You can break that down into four sets of four temperaments. There's just so many benefits to being able to do something operationally instead of academically, 
And that's really the, the advantage that CIA brings to the table in everything that they run is they come from a very pragmatic operational decision uh, making position rather than this question of, well, what's the best? The best is yet to be discovered. There's always something better. My mm. friggin' my ninth grade coach in in track and field taught me there's always somebody better than you, but that doesn't mean you don't race right now. Yeah. Interesting stuff. So what is, you've got on your t-shirt Everyday Spy, and I wanted to ask you, have you got some everyday hacks, some cool things that you can teach us that are relevant in everyday life from being an ex-spy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of those hacks may be uh, woefully unsurprising to you, or they may be like shockingly simple, right? So here's, here's a hack. Uh, the first thing that you should drink every morning is 500 milliliters of water, right? Just sit it right next to your bed. And as soon as you wake up with your sore back or your sore feet or whatever you have, your hangover from the night before, before you drink coffee, before you eat anything, drink 500 milliliters of water. And in about 11 minutes, 10 to 12 minutes, averages 11 minutes, your body will then be hydrated with that 500 milliliters of water. And when I say your body, what I mean is your stomach, your liver, your kidneys, your bowels, right? So your whole body will essentially have now been infused with life-giving water, which is going to increase your alertness, your level of uh, how awake you are, your body's going to feel better. What the average person does is drinks tea or coffee first thing in the morning. What benefit you get from the tea or coffee is actually the water. The tea carries with it some sort of caffeine or tannin. The coffee carries with it caffeine and tannins also. So those things actually get processed as food or chemical, in, uh, chemical infusions into the body. So they change the composition of your blood. Uh, but the water is the thing that makes you feel good. And people don't realize that, right? right. So that's just one simple hack. Another really good hack uh, for people who don't know it is to actually eat berries, be, have berries be the first thing you put into your system strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries. Uh, if you can't put berries in your system, put some kind of simple melon, watermelon, cantaloupe, honeydew. Put something like that into your system first because it's very easy for your body to break down the, uh, the actual food itself through the digestive system so you don't spike your stomach acids. Uh, but what you do get is an infusion of fiber and basic uh, simple sugars, simple energy, and uh, you start your day off really strong. With those, I mean, those are just two diet hacks that I tell those hacks to my ultra high net worth clients uh, who have who are 60 years old and multimillionaires and it changes their life. It changes their life at 65 years old to drink 500 milliliters of water. That doesn't mean they're dumb. It just means that we've never been taught that because the marketing of the world tells us to start your day with a cup of coffee, right? Or the marketing of the world tells us that we should start our day with something other than this, something as simple as water. Mm. Um, it was quite interesting doing our research. Um, sometimes I do a shit ton of research and sometimes I don't do much at all. Um, just depending on making, because we're, what, eight years in, thousand episodes, I've got to keep myself interested. Um, and I watched that interview with you with Lex, like I said. But what we decided to do as our research in this instance was more go in the comments as opposed to watch the interviews, because that can be really revealing. And we were oh, yeah. shocked. We were shocked because so many people said, you're still in the CIA. <laughs> Are you still in the CIA? No, you cannot be. You, you cannot be actively enrolled or actively uh, employed by the CIA and at the same time claim your CIA affiliation overtly. Those are two things that you can't do. Right. So there, there are people who work for CIA in non-undercover status, and even they are required by their HR department 
to remain discreet about their CIA affiliation. So the only way that you can disclose publicly your CIA affiliation is by not being affiliated with the CIA currently. So right. I understand the, the comments out there. I actually, I love, this is between you, me, and anybody else listening, I guess, all those trolls that are out there, all the people who want to spread like hate and, and the cowards who hide behind their anonymous handle and shit talk the people who are trying to do something with their lives like you and me, Rob, they don't realize how valuable they are to mm. us because they're the, they're the ones that make content go viral. It's the coward who hides behind his handle of mama's boy 201, right? <laughs> who, tells, who tells you how shitty your beard looks or tells me how I'm still part of CIA. That comment is what YouTube picks up as yeah. engagement. And then it, it doesn't read the comment as positive or negative. Like you said, it's human beings that put the right or wrong, good or bad uh, umbrella over things. All the algorithm sees is engagement. And the more people who engage, the more the algorithm feeds us to more people, right? So our success largely hinges on the trolls out there who want to talk shit. And I love it when they talk shit. I love it when they accuse me of being in the CIA, when they accuse me of, of killing children or spreading crimes through South America. I've been accused of the WMD lie in Iraq, which happened wow. when I was like 15 years old. <laughs> so like they don't even realize they're boosting our business. They're increasing our reach. They're maximizing and optimizing our potential marketing value by giving us negative hate comments. So mm. in, I encourage them as much as I can, and I try to feed them as much as I can to piss them off. Amen to that. Amen <laughs> to that. So what are the common ways one leaves the CIA? Is it, oh, well, you know, it's pension time, or is it often fired, or is it, you know, you, you have a shelf life? Because it's not your normal kind of job. So around 2000, uh, 2017, CIA went through a major transformation. Um, and a lot of it was tied to the Trump administration, right? Because uh, whether you, I mean, it's probably not a surprise, but when you serve at CIA, you, you largely serve there out of ideological conviction. You want to be there, right? So you believe in the American system or you believe in the president or you believe in something that the United States stands for. Well, after 2016 and all the drama that came along with Trump's uh, Trump's election in 2016, there were massive ideological questions that the American population started asking. So I say that because prior to 2016, the attrition out of CIA was about one and a half percent, one point five percent attrition rate, which is nothing. That's right. Yeah. And the vast majority of that attrition was people who would retire. So you would retire out, you would get your pension, and then we called it a revolving door. Trump actually addressed this revolving door in about 2018. But then you would enter a revolving door where you would take all of your CIA experience, your CIA clearance, your CIA network as a retiree, and you would go work for a contractor, a private intelligence firm, and then you would go right back into the building. And now you would go in as a contractor for Booz Allen Hamilton or a contractor for Mantech or a contractor for some other company. Uh, and you would continue working. So that was how it worked with a one and a half percent attrition in 2000, let's say 15. My wife and I, both CIA officers, we both left in 2014 and it was the, the system didn't even have a way to process two people voluntarily separating in 2014. It was a total HR disaster. They didn't know what to do with us and we didn't know how to fill out the right paperwork because the right paperwork didn't really exist. Fast forward to 2017 and CIA has since been going through massive attrition. So now it's running into an issue where where the younger generation who is working there, they're not working there for a career. 
they're working there because it's a cool thing to have on your resume. It's a fun challenge. Maybe they were idea, uh, ideological when they first showed up, but then after two years on the job, they realize that it's just another government job, right? So they become disenfranchised or disillusioned. Uh, and then they leave and they leave after three years, five years, seven years, whatever else. So now it's very different. So the attrition rate is much higher. I don't really know what it is right now. The last time I had someone give me a stat from the inside, uh, they were losing uh, up to one undercover officer a day, which is, you know, 365 undercover covert operatives, $1.5 million in training, right? They're losing one of those every day of the year which is 365 losses in a year. And that's just one career field. That's not counting anybody who's an analyst or who's a tech officer or, or anything else, linguists and logistics officers and you know everything, computer programmers, everything else in between. So they're suffering from a major loss in attrition now, and that's why you see them so actively trying to hire. Mm. And why did you and your wife leave? So we left for family reasons. Right. Um, my wife and I, yeah, we, we were a tandem couple which means that we were both undercover. We both worked together on the same operations and we traveled the world together oh, undercover. Wow. Yeah, it was a ton of fun. It was a very exciting life. And then one day we got pregnant. Uh, and of course, it wasn't like, surprise, we got pregnant. We were trying to get pregnant. But once the time came that we realized we were having a child, I don't know if you have any children yourself, Rob. I do. Uh, all of your priorities change. Mm. And all of a sudden, the idea of traveling the world and being gone from each other for six weeks at a time without knowing where the other person is yeah. or if the other person's coming back, it becomes much less sexy and fun. And, uh, and we really wanted to ded dedicate ourselves to raising a family. So when we went back to CIA and we told them, hey, we are, we're pregnant. We're looking, to have a like, we're, we're looking to have this child. We figure we might as well also grow our family with a second child. Let's take like a seven, five to seven year hiatus from operations, right? Put us in like an administrative role, put us in some low level desk jockey role so that we can raise our family and get them into school. And uh, because of the nature of the work that we did and what we were involved in, CIA had different plans for us. So if they weren't willing to negotiate with our goals as parents, uh, and we weren't willing to negotiate with our role as parents either. So mm. that's why we chose to leave. Well, so I was going to ask you actually that, by the way, congratulations. That is a great story. Um, because <laughs> my, my guess was going to be, it's really hard to hold down a relationship when you're an undercover spy. <laughs> it is that too. Uh, and, and that leads to, uh, we also had the benefit of, of working with all these people who had failed relationships. Mm. Divorce is rampant in CIA. Yeah, I think there's yeah. like a 55% divorce rate. Wow. There's a lot of adultery. There's a lot of alcohol abuse. There's a lot of drug abuse. There's a lot of you know, people, people deal with stress the way that average people deal with stress. Mm. And when you have abnormal stress, you have abnormal coping mechanisms. Yeah. Um, CIA is not surprised by that. When they recruit us, they know that we have these vices. And then when we fall victim to our vices, they have in-house counselors and therapists and everything else to help, help us, you know, remain, uh, remain, remain capable of our job without becoming flight risks or some sort of other risk. Mm. So we knew that we were making one of those decisions where it's like, hey, if we stay here and we keep doing this, you know, our chances of success as a couple goes down with every year. Mm. So if we jump ship now, we take our chances on the outside, at least we get a chance to make this whole thing work and we get to forge our own path instead of be a number, another number under uh, mm. the CIA bean counters. Mm. As an ex-CIA spy, um, can you easily spot a liar? I wouldn't say it's as easy as people think it is, uh, but it is quite a bit easier for us than it is for the average person, right? There are certain tells that liars have. Like? Uh, and uh, <laughs> so 
Uh, one thing is that liars tend to liars tend to uh, make themselves falsely unemotional. So they they try to control their emotions in part because they know that in order to tell a convincing lie, they don't want to appear deceitful. So in their efforts not to appear deceitful, they also become artificially unexcitable, right? So sometimes you're dealing with somebody who just doesn't have a lot of emotions, somebody who's stoic, but more often than not, you're dealing with somebody who's trying to cover up a fact because it's very hard to disconnect your emotions from your cognitive brain. There are two, two different sides of the brain, right? Left brain and right brain. So your left brain controls your logic, your right brain controls your emotions. So when you're logically choosing to tell a lie, what often happens is you lose control of your other brain because you're putting so many resources into your left brain. So that's why when people lie, you'll see them look away or look bashful or give a little giggle when they're untrained liars, unskilled liars. But when they're someone who's, who's more experienced at lying, when they are, quote, what you and I would call a liar, right? When they're an experienced liar, they've kind of trained their right brain to turn off while they dedicate so much effort to their left brain. So that's why, like, it's easy to tell a lie in a child, but it's harder to tell a lie in an adult because an adult has had more hours, more experience lying. Mm. So what you're looking for is those emotional breaks. Uh, it's harder to tell with, like, eye movements, what we call micro expressions. Micro expressions are useful if you're very, very well trained. But if you're like the average person, it's really hard to pick up on those micro expressions. Mm. How easily could you kill me? Uh, it would it would hurt my feelings a little bit to kill you, Rob. <laughs> but so that would be the hard part. Practically, how easily could you kill me? Uh, let's see. I'm I'm guessing. I'm looking at you. I don't know quite how tall you are, but I'm guessing we're a pretty fair six matchup. Three. You're probably six three. Six three. Yeah. Oh, we're not nearly as fair a matchup as I was <laughs> as I was hoping for then. So yeah, I would I would say if I could get if I could get the jump on you, you'd probably be unconscious in about eleven seconds, and wow. then I would be able to do whatever I needed to do with you from there. And, and uh, but that, it would be it would be hard to kill you while you're conscious. I'll say that. Right, and that's um that would be close combat based as opposed to like poison or anything like that, would it? Correct. Yeah, poison is actually quite difficult to use on an individual. Right. Uh, the 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 movies and stuff make it seem like it's easier, but understanding someone's body composition and how fast they're going to metabolize a poison and whether or not they're going to identify the moment that they are poisoned, whether they're going to lash out against you when you've poisoned them, that stuff gets really nasty, right? right? The Russians are, the Russians are kind of unique in their willingness to use that stuff. I mean, even the Israelis just prefer to blow people up rather than try to poison them. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. I want to go back, and this is bugging me, and I should let it go, but I'm not going to. <laughs> but I want to go back to the fact that you said that we as a, a species won't ever wipe ourselves out, or, or, or I don't even think you said that. I think you said, you know, we'll continue as a species. But isn't the sun only got about five billion years of burning left before that goes and burns itself out into some kind of black hole? And it, like, if you go back enough time, does, don't you get a natural... Won't there be some, uh, I don't know. Extinction level event. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, but that's not us doing it to ourselves. Those are right. natural phenomena. Okay. Yeah, when it comes to us doing it to ourselves, like there's the, the thing that nobody wants to talk about because it's, it's a wet blanket in a, you know, it's a wet blanket in a soap party. If, you're, if you talk about the fact that humans are built to self-preserve. I want to talk that we about all, it. Let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all we're all built with a instinct to preserve ourselves. So even the people who are creating 
AI, even the people who were creating cutting edge technology, even the people who created nuclear weapons, they were all creating them with an eye towards preserving themselves, right? So I'm, there's, a, there's an element artists talk about where they put a piece of themselves into their creation. The same thing is very true for when people do programming or when they create uh, digital artifacts, right? They're putting a bit of themselves into the artifact. The logic that they use to code something is logic that they created in their own head, right? Or a team of people created in their own head. So you can't help but kind of, you're kind of leaving the residue of humankind into everything that human, human beings create. And a big part of that residue is preservation, right? Legacy, living on, uh, generational something, generational knowledge, generational impact, whatever it might be. So with that in mind, you know, we may want to even even supervillains from comic books want to take over the world, right? Sometimes they want to kill everybody, but they always want to preserve themselves, right? Yeah. So um, why do you think we don't want to talk about this then? Because to me, this sounds um, thoroughly interesting. And um, I know that about myself. Um, because it, it, neutra it neutralizes the virality of the doomsday prediction from AI, right? I, I'm, the reason I'm afraid of AI, I'm not afraid of AI on its own. If anything, I kind of welcome the day that AI exists. It'll be really nice to talk to like an intelligent, level-headed, non-emotional something, right? It's like, remember when Ask Jeeves, the search engine first came out? Mm. I used to love using Ask, G Ask Jeeves because I felt like I was asking a question of a butler, right? That's the way it was built. <laughs> it was like the greatest search engine ever, just not really well built. So it's going to be really nice when we have AI to engage with. When we, when we talk to Alexa or we talk to Siri and she doesn't fuck up the answer like she so often does right now, right? It's going to be really nice to have that. Uh, but what people, what people are afraid of is that they think that AI is going to do what the movies do and it's going to like realize that human beings are, are some kind of threat and ineffective and need to be neutralized or destroyed or whatever else. Uh, I don't think that's how AI is actually going to work at first, right? I think instead AI is going to take its cues from the programmers who program it. So the first AI developed is going to be something like, like what we have with ChatGPT, just something to talk to. Mm. But then eventually it's going to be turned into something that can fire a weapon. And then it's going to be turned into something that can lead a, a squadron of UAVs across the ocean to carry out a secret mission. And then it's going to be you know, something that's, that creates its own cyber attack. Uh, and it's going to be something that learns how to hide in the internet or hide by hopping from satellite to satellite without being caught. Right. And then it's just eventually all of those different AI streams are going to learn how to connect themselves. And that's when you have your, you know, your your Terminator Skynet moments where everything's connected and it wasn't us that connected it. So I sometimes think and it, it, maybe we're going to disagree here, but I'd love your thoughts. I sometimes think that we think we are smarter than we are as a species. If you look at the laws of nature, the laws of nature are the laws of nature, they are unbreakable. You resist them, you ain't winning. But if you look at the laws of humanity, they're manipulable, we can cheat, we can lie, and we can break them ourselves. Do you think as a species we have this hubris where we think we're more intelligent than we are and we should listen to nature more and we often inter intervene too much in you know, our pursuit for progress? We're, always, we're intervening too much with nature. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I think what's happened with human beings is that we have separated ourselves from nature, 
we no longer think of ourselves as part of nature. We think of ourselves as something different. So I, I don't use the term that we, are, we think that we're smarter than we are. I think, if anything, we are quite a bit smarter than we actually act, right? I think we're, we act quite dumb compared to how smart we really could be because we let bullshit like social pressure and uh, cultural norms and you know outside hierarchical power structures. We let all of these things direct our actions, even though in our brain we're like, this doesn't make sense, mm. right? But we still do it anyways. Why, why do we walk on a sidewalk and cross at a crosswalk? Because we have to, not because it's efficient. Even though we all, there's a part of all of us that's like, I kind of don't want to walk on this sidewalk. I kind of don't want to cross at that crosswalk. So if anything, I think human beings are smarter than we give ourselves credit for. But mm. I do think that the problem that you're talking about is that we've separated ourselves from nature. We have, we have forgotten that there's an element of survival that's required every day because so much of our survival has been outsourced to something or someone else. Someone else takes care of making sure there's electricity. Someone else takes care of making sure, you know, berries grow and get shipped to the grocery store. All we have to do is go into our office and click our computer, log in, log out, and take our paycheck to the grocery store and buy what we need to eat. We've, we've separated ourselves from nature. And as a result of that, we let ourselves get very distracted by bullshit. Uh, and, and we continue to then kind of generationally uh, pervert the next generation by being even more disconnected to nature or disconnected from nature than our generation was. Mm. I used to play outside, yeah. right? I used to be able to play outside until the lights went on. Yeah. What, what do kids do now? Kids do like kids now aren't allowed to go outside of the house without an app and a tracker on their phone. And most uh. of the time they spend their time behind a screen. Mm, I mean, we, are you old enough to remember when you could go out of the house and you didn't have to lock the car or the house door? Yeah, I still, as an adult, I will still tell my wife, like, don't lock the door. And she looks at me like I'm crazy, right? <laughs> just everybody's different. And I, I spent a summer in Maine with my family just so they could see what it's like to go back in time. Because mm. in a lot of in a lot of ways, Maine, which is one of the 50 states in the U.S., Maine is like going back in time 20 years. Right. So in 2023, it was kind of like living more like in 1990 when you went up to Maine. Yeah. But it was, a, it was an era where kids played outside and you didn't have to lock your door when you parked in your own driveway and shopkeepers lived above their shop, right? Mm. It was a whole different world back then. So like I said, um, Andrew, when I do my research, sometimes I go deep, sometimes I stay distant. But there is something specific you said that I want to address here because I... Um, you're an entrepreneur now. I've been an entrepreneur for 17 years. And this is really useful information that if we can proliferate out to the entrepreneurial community, more people are going to start that business know that they know they want to, but they haven't yet done. And more people are going to be successful in business. And it was, I th it, uh, if you could explain it, but I'll set the scene. But I think you basically said that you need, if you've had some kind of childhood trauma, but it hasn't broken you, you're often a very successful person. And I see that time and time again. Entrepreneurs have had some childhood issues, not if it's too hard on them and they break, they don't often become entrepreneurs, but they've got a bit of baggage in proving themselves and you know, maybe they didn't have a good relationship with their dad. They can become very successful. And I heard you talk about that. Yeah, exactly right. So one of the things that we're taught at CIA is that one of our kind of core reasons why we're recruited is because we have some kind of childhood trauma. There's something that we're carrying with us from childhood that helps shape our cognitive uh, processing when we were kids, right? Because that's what childhood trauma is doing. Childhood trauma is basically 
conditioning and programming the prepubescent brain, right? Your core brain before you layer anything else into it, before college, before grade school, before, before quizzes and tests and recess, right? Childhood trauma is conditioning you for something. But the problem is that too much trauma ends up uh, breaking systems in your brain and then it, it makes you reliant on coping mechanisms. So too much trauma is a bad thing, but there is this sweet spot where trauma creates in us this desire to prove ourselves, what we call a high performance uh, initiative, right? So it creates this initiative for high performance. So then we always wanna do better, we always wanna improve, we always wanna win, we always wanna learn, we always wanna try, we always wanna get up early and go to bed late. That is exactly what an entrepreneur needs to succeed. When you meet people who have a good idea, but they don't have the drive to pursue that good idea, they had an easy childhood. They didn't have enough trauma. Mm. When you meet somebody who has a good idea, but they can't put down the bottle long enough to make their idea a reality, they had too much trauma mm. and they're never going to make their idea a reality. But when you meet the person who's hungry and who doesn't call mom every week because mom kind of let them down, but they still don't want to tell mom that she was a disappointment, you know, and dad wasn't really there all the time because dad was working all the time. And secretly we all wonder, did dad like work more than he liked us? You're the exact right kind of entrepreneur, right? Because you're the kind of person who's never going to get tired, never going to give up. You're the one who's going to make your idea come to reality because frankly, you're still looking for dad's attention. And there's not a single thing wrong with that. If looking for dad's attention brings you $20 million, right? Because you'll get someone's attention in probably your dad's. Yeah, you, you may as well have just described my childhood there right at the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's, here's a paradox about that. Um, should we look to change who we are to try and get the results that we think we want? Or should we more try and accept who we are and live our life from acceptance of who we are and make the best of that? If, if you can understand the differences. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say this is where I, I uh, go a very different direction than your standard self-help kind of person. Because your standard self-help person is like, oh, you need to improve yourself and change who you are. Uh, or they say you need to accept who you are and love yourself. I'm saying both of those things are a waste of your time. What you need to do is seek to understand yourself. And then once you understand who you are, understand your comparative advantage and then lean in to whatever that comparative advantage is, right? So maybe you are exceptionally good at, at deceit. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Find a way to use that to your advantage. Maybe you're incredibly honest, maybe whatever, maybe you, uh, maybe you're very good at studying world religions, even though you don't believe in any of them. There's, there is a place to make profit in every idea that you can think of, because there is somebody out there who's less good at the thing that you're good at than you are. And really, when it comes to being a business person, when it comes to being an entrepreneur, all you have to do is find a way to find the people who have a hard time doing the thing that you do easy and then sell them your solution because it's easy for you. Right now, some people want to say that that's calling it calling it being ordained, right? You are ordained by God to be a teacher. You're ordained by God to be a leader. You're ordained by God, whatever. Maybe, maybe that's what you are. Or maybe you just understand leadership principles or you just understand how to teach math easier than somebody else. And there's a very valuable uh, empirical way of measuring 
your impact through dollars and cents or pounds and whatever else. So you know when people say, I want to be respectful of your time. I don't. I want to nick as much <laughs> of your time as I can. But I know you said we need to stop top of the hour. So what I'm going to do is I've got like a load more questions and I'm just going to hope that we can do another one of these, maybe face to face in a few years time or whatever. You know, if you, yeah, that if, would be great, man. I, I'm looking at traveling to, uh, to London probably in October, November. Uh, so I know I'll be back and I'll be in London then. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where you record from. Yeah, we're, well, we're in Peterborough, just outside London, but we go to London. Um, we find on our analytics that generally the face-to-face -face ones do a lot better. Oh, so, for sure. yeah, I mean, it, it, if it's okay, maybe we can hook that up for face-to-face -face in when you're in London. Yeah, let's do it, man. Right. I, I, I love the fact that you brought me here for a nice virtual date to make sure that I was going to be, you know, quality enough for an in-person day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then super quick fire to finish. Let's do it. Um, what's the biggest mistake you've ever made in your life? Ooh, going to a military college. Wow, why? Because I lost out on four years of my life and I totally just like changed the way that I, I view the whole world. It's one of those love-hate relationships, man. But I haven't made many big mistakes, so that's why I have to qualify that as a pretty big mistake. Yeah, I did architecture, and it was a complete waste of time, and I felt the same. I could have started my business when I was 23, not 27. Because, yep. um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, I didn't make any mistakes because it's made me who I am. Bollocks. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> What's your most brutal life lesson? Oh. I had a girlfriend break up with me when I was like, what was I, 20 years old? Uh, and she broke up with me because some other guy played baseball. And it was one of, it was a lesson. Yeah, that was the reason. And it was a lesson for me where I was like, you really can't understand how other people make their decisions, right? So you just, people, people rationalize things in the most messed up ways. So instead of trying to figure out why they made the decision they made, try to, try to, control the environment so they make the decision you want them to make. Mm. That actually is harsh. Yeah, it sucks, dude. Ow. We've all had that. We've all had yeah. that breakup where you're like, this is some bullshit, right? Yeah, but sometimes you don't want to know the truth. <laughs> I, I remember I, my first girlfriend broke up with me, but she didn't actually break up with me. Like, the first girl I fell in love with, and she wrote me a birthday card and it went, it said, to you, from me. And immediately when I got that, I like, it's over. I knew it. And that was hard. Anyway, this isn't yeah. about me. Um, <laughs> the trauma. The Good trauma. The future. What are you A, most excited about and B, most scared of for the future? Uh, I am the most excited about travel. What's travel going to look like? Are we going to find a way to make airplanes comfortable finally? Are we going to bring back supersonic aircraft? Because that would be amazing. Mm. So I'm super excited about the future of travel. Uh, and the thing I'm the most scared of is uh, what type of medical methodologies we're going to come up with to extend life. Because I, I, I get very uncomfortable around old people who are trying to extend their life instead of just embrace being old. And a little bit of me wonders if I'm going to be a gracious, like a graceful old person, or if I'm going to be one of those desperate people who are seeking out, you know, medicines and uh, live in care providers and who knows what else to try to extend my life mm. or plastic surgery. Right. So, uh, 
medicine is always medicine is going more and more in a commercial productive uh, productized direction rather mm. than a life-saving life-preserving kind of direction mm. so what does the future of commercial medicine look like mm. that's scary mm. <laughs> and final one um this show is called disruptors what does the word disruptive mean to you so disruptive to me means it's taking something that has always worked and it's shaking it up by showing it it could be better. That's what disruption is to me, right? Someone who's disruptive in class isn't necessarily someone who's just stealing attention in class. It's someone who's saying, hey, this classroom has worked in the past, but it's not really working right now. There could be a better way. And can you tell us a bit more about what you do and um, you know who you work with? I have a big entrepreneurial following. I know um, you work with entrepreneurs, so it'd be great to hear about that. Yeah, absolutely. My company, Everyday Spy, works with uh, works with entrepreneurs and executives all over the world, uh, and we teach everyday people how to use spy skills to gain an unfair advantage in everyday life. So sometimes that has to do with how you read your customer. Sometimes that has to do with how you get your wife to take the garbage out at night. Uh, either way, we teach people the hacks that they need that we learned in the field at CIA. And do you do? Um... Do you do corporate type stuff as well, team building type stuff? Do you do any of that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the vast majority of our business, if people visit my website, everydayspy.com, you'll see that we have a, a great deal of digital resources that you can use for research, uh, courses that you can buy online. Uh, but our, our bread and butter is really giving that executive client base and that uh, successful entrepreneur client base one-on-one -on -one training, specific coaching, uh, dedicated training experiences that help unlock new skills and new points of view that they didn't realize existed before. And where are you most active on social where we can you know, see your content? Yeah, absolutely. If you want to find, you can find me on any social media platform if you look up Everyday Spy. Uh, and I am most active on Instagram currently, uh, but we are launching our own new YouTube podcast channel. The reason that I'm sitting here in my bedroom is because I'm building a studio in my office space so that we can double down on YouTube and really invest in a proper high level production studio for YouTube. Andrew, this has been great. I hope you've had a good time. I'd love, looking forward to meeting you in November or when you're in the UK. And just thanks for giving your time and sharing some of your experience. Yeah, my pleasure, Rob. Thanks for having me, man.